Good evening, afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the BBNT Distinguished Leaders in Action Lecture Series. We are delighted to have you here with us this evening. Thank you for coming. I know we've got some folks that are going to be coming in here. Um, and it is an honor and a privilege for me to introduce tonight's uh, speaker and special guest, Stephen DeMay, the president of Duke Energy for the state of North Carolina. Uh, and he is a 1994 alum from our MBA program here in the McCall School of Business. So we are in many ways, Stephen's coming home. We're in the Rogers Science Building in the Duke Energy Auditorium <laughs> where on the campus where he earned his MBA. So we are excited to have you here, Stephen. Thank, Thank you. you so much for your time and for being with us. Um, I also want to recognize Stephen's family. Uh, his wife, Linda, and his sons, Nicholas and Matthew, are here in the back. And, uh, we appreciate you all being here as well. Welcome to the campus. We're delighted to have you here and host you here this evening as well. You're going to bring them up. Yes, too, we've right? got a few Let, questions. Yeah, yeah that so we'll I have a few questions <laughs> of my own. <laughs> this so. is the time to ask it. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, just a couple of things. Uh, for those of you that have uh, maybe not been here before, what we do is we have about a 45-minute uh, or so facilitated discussion, and we call it a fireside chat. And then uh, we will move into some audience questions. So you'll have an opportunity. We typically have around 15 minutes or so for audience Q&A. So if you've got a question or if there's something that Stephen says that maybe triggers something, jot it down. And hopefully we'll have an opportunity to have you ask your question. Um, we do have a hard stop at 630 for those of you who have class this evening. Your faculty, your professors have graciously given you that 30-minute um, kind of uh, window to past six when the classes start, but we do promise a hard stop at 6.30. For those of you that uh, do not have class, we have a reception just outside the auditorium here following the event tonight, so please, uh, if you can, stay with us and join us. And if for some reason we don't have time for your question, perhaps you'll have an opportunity to ask uh, Stephen uh, then. So a reception immediately following uh, the event tonight. So this program is made possible by the generosity of BB&T. Uh, this is the now moving into the 11th year of the BB&T Distinguished Leaders in Action program and so we're delighted to partner with them and appreciate their ongoing support uh, for tonight's event. So without any further delay, I think what I want to do is dive into the program. You all have received a bio for Stephen as you came in this evening. Talks a bit about his career, his career progression, a little bit about his education, and we're going to go uh, much deeper than that so you'll really get a sense of Stephen, his leadership style, and his journey to this point as well. So with that, I'll just uh, get us started and get us going here. So. Stephen, um, let's start with maybe getting to know you a little bit better. If you would, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you were raised, first job, uh, those kinds of things, and how you got started in your career. So had you not handed out a uh, bio, I was going to say that I grew up on an island, and that would conjure up some image <laughs> in your mind. Yeah. But it was with five million other people. This was <laughs> Long Island, New York. So um, I grew up in a, um, a suburb of New York City, a close-in suburb called Garden City. And um, um, the, the whole growing up in New York thing, I think, um, really played a part in kind of forming the person I am. 
Um, New York was um, very impactful on, on many levels. Um, my parents were both born and raised in Brooklyn. My father worked for over 50 years in Lower Manhattan. Um, the, the whole cultural draw of the city, the, the concerts, the shows, the sporting events, the restaurants, we as a family took advantage of those. Uh, the community that I grew up in regularly did. Even the school communities would take advantage of those aspects of New York City. And so um, that, that was a, a pretty um, impactful element to my childhood. In fact, um, there were times when my father would go into the office on weekends on a Saturday, and I would go with him. He'd do his work. We'd go out to eat, and then we would watch the World Trade Center being built. Mm. And it was really a great experience. Mm -hmm. We did it a lot. It took a long time to build. Mm -hmm. And so when 9-11 happened, that was an especially sure. poignant loss yep. uh, for me. But um, I would say the other part of the way New York um, played a role in my childhood was that um, as a teenage boy, me and my friends figured out that Manhattan was just a 30-minute train ride away. And so our parents thought we were just going over to each other's houses. <laughs> but we would get on the train, we would go into Manhattan and yeah. create mischief <laughs> and come back and nobody was any the wiser. So um, anyway, that was um, um, kind of my, my beginnings and where I grew up. So my parents had seven children and I'm the youngest of those seven, um, which also had its you know, mm -hmm. uh, forming aspects because I've spent a lifetime denying the allegations that I was spoiled by my mother. <laughs> and, um, and my family thinks that the reason I eat as fast as I do is because I had to do so for survival <laughs> purposes right, yeah. at, at the table. Um, so youngest of seven, um, 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 I had great parents. I think my father's story, just to go off on a sure, little bit no, of a please. tangent on that just for a moment, is particularly uh, interesting. So he, his parents were Italian immigrants. So my father is a first-generation American. He was born in 1914, which is the year World War yeah. I started. Yeah. That's a long time ago. And, um, you know, being Italian immigrants in this country in the early 1900s wasn't the easiest thing. Right. And, um, but his family, his parents, overcame a lot of things mm -hmm. to raise him in a really nice home. You know, he went to a prep school in Brooklyn, and he ended up going to an Ivy League school for college, Dartmouth. His brother went to Columbia. Mm. And these are two sons of immigrant mm -hmm. parents who, um, you know, arguably went to some of the best schools yeah. in the country. Yeah. And, you know, I think that says a lot about, it says as much about my grandparents, frankly, as it does, does mm. about my father, because that they were able to, to adjust their life in this country and to raise two sons and kind of start the American dream. And so he, um, four years after he graduated from Dartmouth, 
he, uh, World War II started, Pearl Harbor occurred. One month later, he um, volunteered for the Army, went to Officer Candidate School, and spent three years in the South Pacific. Mm. Won a Bronze Star. Wow. And the fact that he was gone for three years, he tells this story. He wrote a book about his, his life, mm -hmm. and um, not a published one, just one for the family. And uh, he was gone from his family for three years. And when you think about the length of three years, um, you know, it's, it's easy to um, uh, see why that generation was called the greatest generation right. because of what they did, what, what they were able to accomplish. Yep. Anyway, to finish the story of my father, he uh, was self-employed his whole life, um, ran and grew a business his father had started as an importer-exporter and put seven of us through college mm. and lived to a hundred and a half. Wow. And, um, wow. Yeah. So very impactful and influential in my life. Maybe yeah. we'll get to yeah, some yeah, of that yeah. later. Maybe. Okay. But back to me. Um, so um, I grew up in Long Island, went to the University of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how, um, how much of a transformation that was for me. The year was 1980, and I can tell you that the University of North Carolina in 1980 was way different than the University yeah. of North Carolina yeah. in 2019. Yeah. The percentage of out-of-state students may not be that much different, but the North Carolina population of students is much different today. It is the, re the, the result of decades of influx of people from other parts of the country. And so when I came down from Long Island to Chapel Hill, it was a completely different world. I mean, the dialect, yeah. the, you know, just the, the way everybody thought and the historical context that people I felt still lived in mm -hmm. um, was really, um, really palpable. And so um, talking about the dialect, I'll just tell this one story. The, um, I walked into, uh, it was like an Eckerd's or a Rite Aid, something yeah. like that, yeah. to buy something. This was my first day in Chapel Hill. And the lady behind the counter said, you come back now. Yeah. So I turned around and went back to the counter. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, she said yeah? And she, goes, and she figured it out pretty quick. No, come back and see us again sometime. <laughs> so I, I caught on. But um, how long did it take you to start saying y'all? It wasn't too bad. It wasn't too <laughs> yeah, long. It was easy. That's yeah. easy. Yeah. It was when then I'd visit back up north and yeah. I said y'all. That's when all the, <laughs> the, the hell broke loose. So um, uh, I was a political science major at Carolina. Uh, why was I a political science major? Because that's what I was really interested in. And um, I graduated with a political science degree and realized that I had a political science degree and really no plans on how to use it. I didn't want to go to law school. So I quickly picked up a few accounting courses and because uh, I had taken some as electives undergrad. I don't know why you take accounting electives, but I did. <laughs> and, um, and I ended up becoming a CPA. That also was a bit transformative for me because it put me on a path of a career that has been largely finance-based. Mm -hmm. We're going to get to where I am today in, in just a minute. Yep. But, um, so I, I became a CPA, 
with a political science degree and I went to work for one of the national accounting firms. I was a tax guy. And um, so here I was, you know, 23 or so, mm -hmm. doing tax work for an accounting firm. Four years prior to that, I had no idea that I would be doing tax analysis, tax research, tax accounting four years later. Yeah. And so um, I did that for about four years and one of my clients was Duke Power Company. And um, I was doing a lot of tax work for the utility, but Duke also had a real estate development subsidiary, and you all, some of you may remember the name, it's called Crescent Resources. Mm -hmm. Crescent oh, yeah. is a real estate development company today, but it's no longer owned by Duke. And um, so I was doing a lot of real estate tax work for that part of Duke Power, and I was doing utility tax work for that part of Duke Power, mm -hmm. and I was not long for public accounting. I was just yep. doing it to punch my ticket, yep. and I went to work for Duke. Okay. But I went to work for them in the real estate side, and this was early in Crescent's yep. um, evolution. Okay. They were doing some really cool things. The golf course communities up on Lake Norman and Lake Wiley. They were building um, office buildings, the ones over on near the, um, oh, it's on Tybola Road where the old Coliseum used oh, to yeah. be, yeah. Um, shopping centers. And um, so this was just really entrepreneurial. They were you know, competing in the real estate development market. Charlotte was on fire. It was just, everything was great. And I did that for about four years. And I looked over at the parent company and I did see an electric utility, but I saw, because I was in the finance uh, end of the business at this point, the real estate finance, so I was, I was f getting funding for all these real estate projects. And I looked across the street at the utility, and while the utility itself didn't really scream, you know, mm -hmm. sexy, mm -hmm. it, um, from a finance perspective, it had the, the size, it had scale. They would borrow money in hundreds of millions of dollars. And I was doing $8 million deals right. at Crescent Resources. And they were doing it in the capital markets up in Wall Street. And um, so it, it just looked like, as a finance professional, that looked like something I really wanted to do. It would, it would broaden my finance experience. So I went to the utility. And I never forget when I told the people at Crescent Resources I was going over to the utility, they were aghast. They, whoa, whoa, you know, we build golf course communities. Right. We build office buildings. And you're going to the utility company? And I did. Yeah. And that decision was also very transformative to me. And I would, and I would argue that it, um, it was one of the most transformative decisions I made mm -hmm. because Duke Energy just, or Duke Power Company at the time, started to become very acquisitive and global-minded. And they started to acquire other companies nationally mm -hmm. and they started to extend their reach internationally. And I went, so I went from financing office buildings up on Tyvola Road to financing utility plant and equipment in the United States to financing 
assets all over the world. Mm -hmm. We were in Australia, we were in Canada, South and Central America, Europe. And I had teams in each of these places, and we were building a business in each of these places. Mm -hmm. And so I traveled to places that I would never have traveled to, um, but for going to the utility, utility company. Yeah. So when I think back on the day that everyone at Crescent thought I had a screw loose, <laughs> and I think about the, the travel that oh. I did, the experiences I had, the businesses that I financed, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty uh, a good decision. Yeah. yeah. You don't know how your career is going to turn out, but that, that's what happened. So I have been in mostly career-related roles at Duke Energy for the bulk of my Duke Energy career. Mm -hmm. um, there was an exception in the 2004-2005 timeframe where I led the company's public policy function. And the company had just gone through um, a crisis. Enron had just happened mm -hmm. um, in the O2 timeframe. And Duke Energy, while we were not Enron, everyone was trying to be Enron at the time. And so all the efforts we made to be just like Enron came back to bite us. And so Duke Energy went through a real slump in the, the um, 2003, 2004, 2005 timeframe mm -hmm. to where we wrote off $8 billion of bad wow. investments. Mm -hmm. Our CEO lost his job. And CEOs don't lose their jobs very often, not in the utility industry. And so <clears throat> Duke was, was under uh, a lot of pressure. And one of the things we knew we had to do was um, fix our relationship with the, uh, the regulators that governed us. And so I saw an opportunity. I was telling Will about this earlier. I saw an opportunity to do something that I kind of liked. If you remember, I'm a political science major. I love the whole mm -hmm. aspect of politics, government, mm -hmm. regulation, you know, just the way that part of our, our, our lives mm -hmm. works is something that really interested me. So I made a play to be the head of public policy at the company, and I actually wrote policy documents and rewrote policy documents that I thought were pretty lame. And I brought them to the person in charge. And I said, I really like, I would like to, you know, um, give it a go to be in the public policy area. And I gave them these policy documents. And the next thing I know, I was the VP of energy policy for the company. And not because I had the experience and not because I was a policy wonk. It was precisely because I wasn't a policy wonk, because that's kind of who got yeah. us, partly got us into trouble to begin with. But it was because they saw the ability, my ability to think broadly outside of the finance realm and, and to, you know, to solve a problem the company had. Yeah. But after that, I went back onto a finance track until about a year ago. Okay. And um, a year ago, I was treasurer of the company. And I had been treasurer of the company for 11 years. And um, during the time I was treasurer for 11 years, 
the company also gave me a second job. The first combination was treasurer and chief risk officer. Then I was treasurer and head of investor relations. Then I was just treasurer for a short while. Go figure. Yeah. And then um, I became treasurer and head of tax. And so I've had a lot of the finance-related roles. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a year ago, the company asked me to take um, uh, this position, yep. president of North Carolina. And um, so just to give you a sense, North Carolina is um, one of six states we operate in, but it's half of our business, yeah. roughly. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 so um, let me ask you about the, the kind of that, that transformation you had with, with Duke Energy. So comparing your job now to, say, the previous job you had with treasurer and um, tax, what, what, is there such a thing as a typical day for you? I know you, ha you have a house here, but you spend most of your time, I think, in Raleigh now. So walk us through if there's such a thing as a typical day for you as president of North Carolina. What is that like? So um, typical, I probably wouldn't say typical, but there are clusters of time that I spent. Okay. Some of the time is doing actually things like this. Um, just the other day, I spoke to a group of large customers for the company. So, first of all, I should have started this whole presentation by thanking you all for being customers of Duke Energy, because I know that you are just by virtue of sitting in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, but we have some very large customers, mm -hmm. um, you know, large industrial yeah. customers, yeah. Um, you know, the tech companies with their data centers and, and the like. And so they take a different kind of care and feeding than our yeah. residential customers yeah. and so on. So anyway, I, I will address groups uh, like that, a, a gathering of our large customers. Mm -hmm. um, a few days ago, I also spoke to the um, civic leaders of the city of Durham. Now, the city of Durham is a very progressive city, very progressive. And so the utility is not their favorite right. company. Yeah. We have an environmental footprint that they don't like. We have a monopoly that they don't like. And um, so, but I, I would go there. Mm -hmm. So I, I am somewhat of a, a face of the company right. to communities, stakeholders, you know, and, and, and the like. Okay. Another part of my role is regulatory and legislative. So we are a highly regulated company. We have regulators that set our rates, the rates that you pay. The regulator also holds us to standards of service and reliability. And um, they virtually have to approve everything of consequence that we do. Okay. And so being highly regulated, any change to the way we're regulated whether we want it or somebody else wants it, it has to be legislated. Regulation springs from legislation. And so I spend a lot of time with lawmakers up in Raleigh, state lawmakers, mm -hmm. and regulators up in Raleigh to make sure that the, the policy making that is occurring, the, the lawmaking that's occurring, mm -hmm. the regulations that are occurring um, which are so impactful to our company that 
we try and make them as constructive sure. as possible. Yep. So that's, I would say, another bucket. Okay. The third one, and, and these aren't in, in order of importance, I'm responsible for the results, the financial results mm -hmm. of the two utilities we operate in this state. So we operate, well, it's actually three. Um, Duke Energy Carolinas, which is the utility that um, covers um, Charlotte and much of the Piedmont. Duke Energy Progress, which yeah. covers Raleigh and East and the city of Asheville. So, and then Piedmont Natural Gas, which is a natural gas company with operations, you know, some in North and South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so um, those two utilities provide power for roughly, uh, I think it's about 88% of the state of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So I'm responsible for those results. Mm -hmm. So I, I have an eye on that. Mm -hmm. I have an eye on how well we are operating our business. Are we providing reliable power, um, storm response, right. Right. things right. like that. So I'd say those three buckets are where I, where I spend okay. most of my time. Okay, terrific. Let me ask you a little bit about your experience um, in the MBA program, and then I'm going to talk to you some about your, your leadership and your leadership style. So you completed your MBA in 1994 here at the McCall School of Business. Um, looking back on that now, we've got a lot of um, MBA students in the, uh, and undergraduate business students in the, in the audience. Looking back on that experience, is there any class that you wish you had taken or a class that you wish you had uh, dug deeper into as, with the gift of hindsight? When you think about your master's experience, what, what advice would you impart to the class or to the group? Well, it probably doesn't have anything to do with what curriculum I chose. Mm -hmm. um, so when I decided to, to do the MBA program, Remember, I was, um, at this point, I was about um, eight years out of undergrad, but I was still a political science major in a finance role and in a finance world. And I felt like I wanted to expand my, at least, educational yeah. um, credentials in um, business. Okay. So I really wanted to get the MBA. Yeah. And so, um, I actually started up at UNC Charlotte. Okay. And the drive was so bad yeah. that I came to Queens. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Okay. It was a matter of convenience. <laughs> but then it became a matter of, um, I just thought the entire program and the, um, the way, it was, a, it was a close community. Yeah. yeah. Now the advice I, would, I guess I would give uh -huh. on the MBA, was I treated it like it was just getting another credential, um, you know, burnishing my resume with one more thing yeah. to make me more valuable to somebody. Yeah. And by doing so, I think that I, um, um, I've, I, I did not take advantage of the people aspect of the experience. And I can't today name a single classmate I went through the program with. Mm. And I wish I did. Yeah. And so I would encourage anyone, especially in the, in the graduate schools of Queens, is to not miss the opportunity to form lasting relationships with some of your classmates. It won't be with all of them, um, but 
I made temporary relationships out of them. I got my degree and I moved on. Mm -hmm. But I completely missed an opportunity. And the reason I, 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 I emphasize the value of that is because ever since then, I have realized that every aspect of my career, really every success of my career, can be tied back more to the relationships I formed both inside the company and outside, right. and as much outside in the roles I was in, than anything else. Yeah. And relationships start should have, for me, started then. And so that would be yeah. my advice to anyone okay. undertaking something as, as important and as you know, painstaking yeah. as a graduate degree yeah. should not miss that opportunity. Okay. All right, perfect. You know, one thing I just thought about when you're talking about the MBA, I want to back up just for a moment to your undergraduate experiences cha at Chapel Hill because something pretty magical happened in at Chapel Hill when you were there in 1982. Uh, and, and it put. Uh, so I was on the map. in Carolina for some very good years. Yeah. So we won a national championship in 1982, but it was. Michael Jordan, James Worthy, Sam Perkins. Some, some of you know these names. Matt You've heard of my, Michael Jordan, I right? heard well, of Michael. Okay. But Lawrence Taylor in football, these were great years. Yeah, that's right. But, but so, so the story, though, grew in importance to me because in 1982, North Carolina beat Georgetown for the national championship. Well, one of my sons in the back of the room <laughs> went to Georgetown University. So at one point in his Georgetown career, I bought a picture of the game-winning shot by Michael Jordan yep. over whoever was covering him at the, or not covering him at the time. <laughs> and and um, Patrick Ewing under the basket like, uh-oh. <laughs> and yeah. I framed it and put it in his bedroom <laughs> for him to come home to. Because we all need to be humble. That's from right. Time to time. So, yeah. I know the picture you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so let me ask you, Stephen, about your, we focus on leadership and leadership development across really all of our programs, especially in the uh, undergraduate and graduate program in the business schools. So how would you describe your leadership style, or maybe more importantly, I know you've got some colleagues here from Duke, how, how would they describe your style? Well, that's going to be two different answers, <laughs> okay? And, and if you ask my family, maybe a third. Okay, well, but no, I, I would say, um, so in the course of a career as long as mine, you go through a lot of leadership mm -hmm. exercises, a lot of leadership training, and there's a reason that the leadership section in the bookstore is, you know, has like 400 volumes yeah, of it's books. Crowded, yeah. It's it's crowded yeah. and it's a complicated field. Yeah. But when I think about my own leadership um, record, I boil it down to um, two things, two main buckets of things. Okay. One is the example that I set, and the other is the um, the way that I engage with the people I'm leading. So I'll start with the first, the, the example that I set. So it's more about me as the individual and the individual that I project every day. And first, but, and these aren't necessarily in order, but I do okay. think this first one's really important. I think having a sense of humor 
in the workplace yeah. is really, really important. Yeah. And some of the people I've most admired in my career have had great senses of humor. Okay. That doesn't mean inappropriate. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're joking around when it's not time to joke around. But I think we all know what it means yeah. to be you know, lighthearted and to have a sense of humor just infects everything yeah. Yeah. In, in a like way. Yeah. Um, I would say that I work hard. And um, I'm not saying that in, in, in any kind of boastful way, but I don't just push the work out and just kind of read the Wall Street Journal and you know, checking out a five and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I really do set the example to, to really just um, devote myself to the effort while I'm at work, and you know, that's the most important thing. So, but while I work hard, I also think that I demonstrate, and my wife might disagree, um, a work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Because, um, again, the most successful people that I have met in my career were able to balance their work lives and their personal lives. Mm -hmm. And it is critical. You are not the professional you should be, and you're certainly not the example you should be if you don't you know, live that, mm -hmm. um, you know, that principle. Mm -hmm. um, so I also um, think that I am um, authentic. And what I mean by that is that I'm genuine with my people, that when I am engaging with them, I'm not engaging with them as the North Carolina president, mm -hmm. and they're not. We are engaging as colleagues, mm -hmm. and I am being candid. I am being relatable to the people that I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that authenticity and being approachable by people is, uh, or, you know, is really important. I want people always to think that they can come to me with anything, an issue, a problem, um, a question, um, good news. Mm -hmm. That's rare, but, it, <laughs> um, but all of those things should be, people should feel equally able to come to me with the good news right. as they do the bad. Mm -hmm. And I think that is all on me. Yeah. And so that's the kind of um, example I try and set. As far as the way I engage my teams, um, so I should have said at the beginning that I'm way better at managing um, high potential people than I am people who are just mailing it in. Okay. But yeah. um, having said that, yeah. um, I, I manage teams that generally know way more about a subject matter than I do. I mean way more. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. But what I make sure that I do know is enough about that subject matter where I can challenge them, where I can um, direct them, where I can take down obstacles for them, where I can help them choose which fork in the road to take. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say challenge them again because 
that when the, when the knowledge differential is such that somebody's an expert in something and one is managing that expertise. Right. The ability to challenge it and to know when somebody is falling maybe into a, a bias of that's the way it's yep. done, yep. that's the way it's always done, that yep. kind of thing. Yep. So um, I also really pay attention to people's strengths and weaknesses. I, I really play to the strengths. Yeah. I harvest them daily. And on the weaknesses, we take detours. We try and go around them, and we develop people away from those when, when, when you can. But people can't be all things to right. all people. None right. of us can. Um, but I, I feel like I, if you pay attention to how somebody can you know, really shine and mm -hmm. add value and help them with issues that prevent them from being promotable and things like that. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that weaknesses get you know, um, sidetracked. No. When they can be developed, mm -hmm. we develop them. But otherwise, you just you don't let them inhibit people. So the other thing um, I, I try and be with my folks is um, very inquisitive. So I, I practice what I refer to as a Socratic method of reviewing people's work. Mm -hmm. So Duke Energy is a meeting-rich environment. We, <laughs> we, we meet on everything. And, but when I am in meetings and my team, or really anyone in the company, is bringing something to me for my review or my approval or something like that, my approach to that is to ask question after question after question to really test the assumptions that that person is making mm -hmm. and to test their conviction to the, of those assumptions and to have them explain why those assumptions you know, are valid. Mm -hmm. I think if you, um, if you look up the Socratic method in Google, and I did uh, today just to make <laughs> it, it called it, uh, there was um, a definition that said um, cooperative argumentative dialogue. Mm -hmm. And it's not the argumentative, like disagreement type argumentative. Right. It is taking two sides of an issue. And so I really, I do that, mm -hmm. not, almost not intentionally, it's just the way I do it. Okay. I ask a million questions. Yeah. And people think they're going to be done in 10 minutes, and it's 30 minutes long. Yeah. So I'm my own worst enemy in terms of cutting meetings short. But that is something I do. Finally, the other thing I think um, in terms of how I engage with my team is um, being transparent. And so um, you, of course, won't be able to see this. But there are four slides on this page. So a um, long time ago, I got this idea that for people to understand what my expectations are, or any, in the workplace, trying to figure out what people's expectations are is often a trial and error exercise. And so a long time ago, I got this idea, you know what, anytime somebody comes to work for me, I'm going to walk them through what my expectations are. 
And so that we're clear. It is, I'm laying it all out. Mm -hmm. And it grew from a slide and a half to four slides, but it's plateaued. We're good at four, because it, it's lasted a long time. <laughs> but this, this process of walking people through it, I cannot tell you how much positive feedback I have gotten on that. Mm. To where people say, that is like, now I know yeah. what to do, what not to do. And people who have worked for me and then gone off and done great things have called me and said, hey, can I get a copy of that mm. uh, document? Mm -hmm. So the document's called Things That Are Important to Me. I talk about things like um, sensitivity to deadlines, sense of urgency. Those are things that I expect in people. Um, how to conduct internal and external relationships. I, I insist on respectful relationships, even when we are a, a customer of, of a vendor or a supplier. I don't want us ever taking advantage of that relationship. Mm -hmm. I want it to be a respectful one. Um, you know, openness and communication skills, these are things I expect of my team. Um, then I get into the nitty-gritty staff meetings. I want you to come prepared yep. to give the group two or three highlights. And if you have nothing to say, say so. Because if you're just going to fill time, I'll know it, they'll know it, and you're missing the point. One-on-one yep. um, -on -one meetings, I love those with my team. And so I encourage them to bring people from their teams and so that we're having a conversation. Because mm -hmm. if there's something confidential that needs to be discussed, well, that's the thing you don't bring somebody. Right. But, so it's, it's a list of these things. But importantly on this, in this document, I confess to shortcomings of my own. And I say things like, um, when I need alone time, um, when you know, I, I have an open door policy, I told you that being approachable is really important to me, but it can't be a, you know, hey, can I come in and talk to you for 30 minutes? Because I might be right. preparing for something really important. Mm -hmm. I talk about, I have um, an email problem. I've always had it, I've had it for years, where I am overrun and overwhelmed by email. And so I instruct my team that if there's something really important, you are not off the hook because you sent me an email. You have to bring that email to me in person okay. if it's important. So I admit that I'm not good at email. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, it's things, the calendar, you know, when can you see me, when can't you, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so that transparency and being very um, clear about expectations mm -hmm. might sound like it's a, hey, this is, here's the rule book. It's right. not that way, and it's never received that way. It's received as really helpful yeah. so that people aren't guessworking around somebody's preferences and style. Yeah. Let me ask you about your style and maybe influence on that. You, you spoke about your father with great affection. Who, who had the greatest impact on your style today? Well, um, so I'm going to mention my father again in a minute because okay. I, I, can't, 
I got to come back to that. Okay. To him as an influence uh, on my style. Okay. But um, so I would say um, there was a person who I worked for back in the 2000s, both before I did that public policy experience that I told you about and after. And so his name was David Hooser. It might be a name somebody in the room might I know. know David. You know David. Mm -hmm. He was treasurer of the company at the time, and he went on to become CFO of the company. And um, David Hooser worked really hard, and he was really demanding, sometimes unreasonably so. And he had a little bit of a rough edge. But it was that expectation uh -huh. of excellence and the ability to always help you get there right. made him a person that you didn't recoil from. You might respect the, the ferocity of yeah. his demands, yeah. but you, were, you didn't dislike him for it. And I also felt like he put the company first. And he showed it in everything that he did. And you have to remember, this is 15 years ago. And back then, the only stakeholder that really mattered in any corporation was the shareholder. Right. Everything we did was yeah. to, for the shareholder, yeah. shareholder value. Today, we're more, we're more <coughs> you know, um, lucid about yeah. stakeholders. Yeah. And we know that we have communities who yeah. are important. We have customers who are important, we have employees who are important, yep. um, and, and um, vendors and suppliers. Mm -hmm. We have all kinds of stakeholders, not just our shareholders. But in the day, that was what was important. And David Hooser lived it. Mm -hmm. The other thing I really liked was he was the picture of work-life balance. I never saw somebody work so hard, and I never saw somebody so protective of his private or his personal time. Mm -hmm. And the way that he was able to execute that, I thought was really admirable. Mm -hmm. And um, he used to say, I work to live, I don't live to work. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it wasn't an original, right? but I remember him saying it. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I yeah. get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my father, I just want to say of my father, um, you know, a self-made guy, and a real renaissance man. And, um, but he also had that real work ethic thing. And um, you know, I remember him saying, doesn't matter what you're doing, what job you have, you do it better than anybody is doing it, always. Whether you like it, whether you don't like it, whether it's a great job or whether it's a shitty job, yeah. do it yeah. as best as you can. Yeah. And so he really um, instilled that work ethic in me. I'd say another thing he did to shape me mm -hmm. is he really kind of wore me out on being connected to the world around me, not just my yeah. world, yeah. my little world, but the big world around us. Because to know what's going on mm -hmm. in the world means you are well-informed, you are more compassionate, you are more empathetic, and you are a more well-rounded individual mm -hmm. than somebody who lives in a silo yeah. 
of information. And he did this at first by making me watch the news with him. Then he would double down and I'd have to watch the Sunday morning talk shows (laughs) with him. (laughs) And he was the one who taught me, I'll I'll never forget the words coming out of his mouth, the most important part of any newspaper is the editorial page. Mm. And if you read nothing else, it's not the sports section, it's not even the front page, it's the editorial section. Know what people are thinking and why they're thinking it, because that will inform you better than any news coverage on the front part of the paper. And so all of that, it it really made me, um, I thought somebody was going in, it made me um, become a poli-sci major. It made me interested in the policies that were affecting the company that I was working for. And it makes me, every day still, I tape the news and I tape the Sunday morning shows and I watch them. Wow. So, and so, and and now in the role I'm in today, that turned out to be quite a useful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to mention one other uh, influence on me as a leader. It has been all the people I have mentored. And so I have been very lucky to have mentored some really great people. And um, they have gone on to great jobs. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that it was not a one-way thing. Right. Because when I mentored them, I learned from them. And then I would watch them go out and do it their way. And so many times I watched it and I said, I like that. Yeah, yeah, I need yeah, to do yeah, more of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I have to give credit not just to the people who were my mentors, right. but uh, the people who I was fortunate to mentor. Yeah, that's terrific. That's yeah. really insightful. Thank you. We're going to open it up for a couple of audience questions here in just a moment, but I want to ask you one more question. Um, and it's about resiliency. So in, in the uh, McCall School, we really focus on developing a more resilient mindset? How do you bounce back from a setback or a disappointment? So I'm curious about um, if you could share with us a time where you encountered an obstacle or a setback. What happened? What did you learn? How did you deal with it? What did you learn from that? And does, it, does that learning still inform who you are today? Well, I, I have to confess that I have been very fortunate in my career where I've never lost a job. I've worked in a relatively stable industry. And so I didn't have a, um, what I would say, a, a crisis type setback. Okay. I had worse than that. I had ambition setbacks. <laughs> and so, um, but I think, you know, maybe it's, it's relatable to some of you in the room, but um, there were times during my career where I thought I was ready for a job that I had aspired to. And I'll just, I'll give you the example. Um, Duke Energy is a, probably intuitively know this, is a very capital intensive business. We have very heavy assets, you know, power plants, transmission assets, pipelines. So lots of capital invested in the business and um, um, so very capital intensive. Okay. So one of the 
to me, if you're a finance person, one of the best jobs in a company like that is the treasurer. Because you not only are raising the capital to, to, to run that business, but you are helping define the strategy of that business because how you finance it, how, mm -hmm. how well you can finance mm -hmm. it, at what cost you can finance it, really impacts a company's strategy. And so I, um, I have to say that I did the international finance thing. I was doing all these things, and I was like, my time yep. is now. Yep. And um, that position came open. And I, I knew it was my time. I was ready. And I didn't get the job. And I was crushed because I didn't feel like I had unreasonable expectations. I felt like I, I, you know, I deserved that right. job. Right. And so I, um, I have to say that I had the initial disappointment. I had the initial doubts about, you know, am I ever going to have that role? Does this company appreciate my contributions? Mm -hmm. Should I look elsewhere? And I would say that I did what my father would have me do, and that is get back to business yeah. and start doing the job the best way I could. Yeah. And incidentally, the person who didn't give me that job is David Hooser, the guy who oh, wow. I <laughs> admired so much yeah. and still do. So I just want to fast forward, if sure. I can. Sure. I uh, know we, we're running out of time. But, um, and then we merged with another company in 2006. Uh -huh. And I thought my time was ready. <laughs> Certainly. I mean, it's three years later, yeah. for goodness sakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, <laughs> but if any of you have ever been part of a merger, it's a, a total crapshoot. Because you are bringing two management teams together. Yeah. Yeah. And you're yeah, trying yeah. to find places yeah. for people. And so the CFO of the company that we acquired became our treasurer. So I was like, uh. yeah. that one, because I knew the whole drill on, on um, mergers, felt a little bit better to me. But here I was. I did not have uh, the role that I aspired to. Yeah. Sure enough, in 2007, David Hooser calls me. I remember where I was, picked up the phone. And he gave me the job of treasurer. Oh. And I was obviously thrilled to have it. And then 10 months later, the financial markets in the United States collapsed. Mm -hmm. And the financial market, or the financial crisis began. Mm -hmm. So I had stepped into an important role for a capital intensive business, right. but a role that then became the epicenter of running a capital-intensive business when capital availability yeah, had dried up. dried up, yeah. And so when I look back on the whole experience, of course, David Hooser didn't know a financial crisis was coming. Right. But David Hooser knew something, and he knew me. Yeah. He knew what other people were capable of. He knew what the job required. And for whatever reasons, he decided that my time wasn't when I thought it was, yeah. but it was on the eve of the financial crisis, as it turned yeah. out. <laughs> but I ended up being uh, a treasurer for 11 years, which I think was the longest of any treasurer in the yeah. company, wow. and, um, and just had a, just a fantastic yeah. experience. But 
Um, can, I just got to spend one sure. more minute. I'm yeah. sorry. Because it happened to me again. So I'm in this treasure roll for 11 years. Remember, it was a record. Yeah. A long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had many ambitions during that 11 years, including to become the CFO of the company. And that just wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. And then a year ago, the company asked me to become president of North Carolina, which I have to tell you, blows away the CFO role mm. and takes advantage of everything yeah. I've all, I've been putting together yeah, yeah, yeah. for my entire career. Yeah, starting with your undergrad, starting right. before that. Yeah. So I guess the moral of the story is the setbacks I was experiencing were ambitions yeah. that were being directed differently. Yeah. And they were out of my control. And I thought you know, this was just a wrong that had to be righted somehow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as it turns out, you know, if, if you're doing you know, good work and you have good leadership, they probably know when your time is better yeah. than you do. Yeah, yeah. That's great about David. I, some of you may know this. I took a mini leave sabbatical in 2015 and 16 and went over to Enpro Industries. And David is a director, and now he's actually the chair, or he was the chairman of the company. Of the and I got to present to the board twice. And so I, I, what you're describing about David is exactly my experience as well. Great good. guy, really great guy. So. All right, well, let's do this. Let me check the time. We, we, are, we are quickly running out of time, so maybe one quick question, and then I'd like to ask you a final question about advice that you would have for us. But who's got a question that they want to ask? Yes, sir. I saw the first hand go up back here. Yes, you. Great question. Great question. Thank you. I, I think um, I attribute that to time. And, um, you know, of course, Duke Energy, as you point out, produces and distributes uh, electric power, a very engineering-based um, company. But all companies, um, you know, require um, strategy, strategists, accountants, lawyers, um, you know, it takes a village yeah. to run a company. And I would say that over the course of many, many years, I learned the industry, I learned the company, I learned the company's place in the industry. And um, I would say that I benefited from time and time spent in positions that really exposed me uh, to the issues that affected our company. Excellent. Great question. Thank you. For, for those of you that may have a question, I hope... Can we ask one, or yeah, one more? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Um, so, this goes back to, like, when you went to the utility side of um, Duke. Um, so, my question is, how did you... What was your... What gave you the ability to kind of see the opportunity of growth? Um, seeing, like, not, not everybody was seeing it. I've seen that ability to kind of just go into... From Crescent, you mean for leaving Crescent, Crescent going, okay, yeah. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. Um, it's been a while, but I have to say, <laughs> I think I was just observant and watching and curious. You know, I think curiosity 
is a, an attribute that would serve you and everybody, me, well. Because um, I think, uh, you know, it, you never know where curiosity is going to lead you. Yeah. And I, I think back on it, and I remember the subsidiary was quite well separated from the parent company. But I was curious about what went on over there. Yeah. And, you know, well, if I'm financing an office building, how are they financing that nuclear power plant? And so, yeah. curiosity. Yeah. Great question. Thank you. Uh, and if you've got a question, if you can stay for the reception afterwards, uh, hopefully you'll have some time to, to talk to Stephen. So let me ask you a final question about advice. But before I do that, what's your favorite Italian uh, restaurant in Charlotte? Toscana. Ah, that's what, all right. Augusto and Toscana. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, as a parting thought for us, um, given this audience that we have, is there any leadership nugget of wisdom or any advice that you would that you would give us? Well, um, I, I would give it only to the students. Okay. Okay. Because I think um, we're too old. Yeah, you're too <laughs> old. Fair and, enough. And I really don't have anything to offer. Uh, so. Um, you know, I, I talked a little bit of before about um, certain attributes that you are in control of that I think are important for leadership. And humility is one that I think is extremely important. Um, you know, being able to admit when you're wrong, being able to admit when you don't know something, um, and never taking advantage of others, and I mean others in a business situation, I think is, is a really important trait. Um, showing uh, or, or being um, candid or showing candor yeah. toward people, people will follow you if you are straight with them. If you BS people, they know it. If you give them half the story, they will know it. And so I think that is really important. Okay. I think being self-aware and being able to read a room is one of the most important things that I see day to day in yeah. business. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I have seen presenting to a room and people are checking out, they don't understand it, they're, either, they're, you know, they're lost in the detail, they lost at a boredom, and the person presses on. And I am telling to the young people in the room, develop a self-awareness and an ability to read a room. And if you can't do that on your own, because it could be hard if it's not natural, then find a, a mentor who goes to those meeting, lots of meetings with you and see if you both understood the room the same way. Yeah. I think it's really important. Yeah. Don't forget the sense of humor. And then I want to mention one other sure. thing that I think is really important. And so when I think about Duke Energy forming partnerships, why does Duke form partnerships with other companies? Well, they do it because there's a gap of some kind. It's usually not financial. Duke can afford to invest here or there. But it could be a gap of talent. It could be a gap of industry experience. It can be any kinds of gaps. So they form a partnership to fill those gaps and to make something successful that would otherwise be unsuccessful. 
And I would encourage you to find that partner or to, to go through, and this again to the students in the room, mm -hmm. when your career time comes, find that partner. There's a line in a Bruce Springsteen song, I'm a huge Bruce fan, uh, you need a good companion for this part of the ride. And I had a great companion for, for my ride. Oh, what a great. So. That's terrific. Thank you so much. It was such an honor for me to share this stage with you, Stephen, and so great to welcome you back home. We have a small token on behalf of the Dean and the McCall School of Business to thank you thank again. You, Will. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. Appreciate it. We will see you up at the reception here. Again, thank you all for coming. Have a great rest of the night.